Hi, everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is our 16th session in our exploration through Tolkien's Middle Earth. Today is a very special day because today we get to start the Fellowship of the Ring. Started properly last week, we discussed the prefatory material accompanying the Fellowship of the Ring. This week, we discussed the first chapter a long-expected party, obviously intended as something of a counterpoint to the first chapter of The Hobbit, things will unfold very, very differently for Bilbo and for the other Hobbits in the course of this particular chapter. It is lovely to have you all here at this unusually early time. It is one o'clock central time here. It is a beautiful day here in Oklahoma City, so I am glad to be with you. I'm glad to be talking about Tolkien on this day, as I'm always really glad to be talking about Tolkien. I normally make the announcements about uh, next week's session right at the end of the show, but this time around, I'm going to make the announcement right now. I'm going to make it right up front because I know that some of you tail off a little toward the end. Some of you have to leave early, unfortunately, because schedules are complicated and you can't spend all day in front of YouTube watching the live broadcast. So next week's session, I'm going to announce right now because it is going to happen at the uncommonly early time of 10 a.m. Eastern. Next week's session will be an early morning 10 a.m. Eastern session partly because I want to continue to move these live sessions around a little bit so that people in other time zones and the people with unconventional schedules can hang out here and, and offer their thoughts live, and also because my schedule next Thursday is insane. So it's basically 10 a.m. Eastern or not at all, and I have too much to say. Importantly, though, that will not be the only session of There and Back Again next week, because over the course of the last couple of weeks in particular, I've received a flurry of really engaging, genuinely brilliant emails about The Hobbit and about the beginning of The Lord of the Rings and about the transition between the two and about uh, biographical readings of J.R.R. Tolkien's life and about allegorical readings of The Lord of the Rings. And I wanted to talk about some of those emails and uh, basically discuss the points raised within those emails. So what I think I'm planning on doing is at some point within the next week to 10 days, I'm going to record a pre-recorded podcast episode in which I read some of those emails, respond to some of those emails, and I'll just put that out in the feed as a bonus episode. I know that we have scheduled Q&As around the midpoint and then the end of each of the books of The Lord of the Rings, but honestly, there's just too much fantastic correspondence and I don't want it to go to waste. So that's going to be happening next week too. So there'll be plenty of there and back again in your podcast feeds, even if you can't make it to the live session at 10 a.m. Eastern next week week. As ever, if you are joining me here live, then you get to hang out in the YouTube chat. You get to hang out in the Discord chat. You get to hang out on Twitter using the hashtag Tabagan, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. And I can see all of your comments here. Um, we've got, let me see, we've got Becca and Melissa and Jenna and Shane and Jackie is here. I think Jackie is on her lunch break. It's a pretty good way to break up the day, right? Uh, Daniel and Carla and Angela. Just, it's wonderful to have you all here. Um, <laughs> Luke asks, how much do you want to be sure it's early so that he can see Guardians tonight? I'm not going to see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 tonight. I'm going to see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 tomorrow night. I will have my thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 in an upcoming episode of Excelsior, uh, the comic book and superhero podcast that I produce along with Sarah Cade Pizant and Vinton Dane over at commonroomradio.com. That's not going to be for another... Two weeks, I suppose, by the time our schedule catches up with our discussion of Guardians of the Galaxy. But yes, that will be tomorrow night. Uh, we will return to evening schedules for There and Back Again following next week's session. I think the two sessions after that are both going to be at our previously usual, our, our more conventional uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central slot. So if you can only make it in the evenings, don't worry, we're going to have some evening sessions again very soon. But this week, 2 p.m. Eastern, obviously, because you're all here. Next week, 10 a.m. Eastern, and we'll have the 
opportunity to talk about one of the most important chapters in all of the Lord of the Rings, I guess. Next week is going to be a particularly uh, fruitful and in-depth discussion, I am sure. Although, honestly, the same could be said of this week's session. I mentioned last time that I'm going to be covering the first three chapters of the Lord of the Rings uh, all on their own. We're covering chapter one this week, chapter two next week, chapter three the following week. And even then, even with that understanding, there's just a lot of material to cover. These are particularly dense chapters, and I don't necessarily want to do them a disservice by skating over too many incidental details. So despite the fact that we're only covering chapter one, and it's not a particularly long chapter, there's still a lot to be said. So I will get into that right now without wasting any more time. Um, Though I will, of course, catch up with the YouTube chat here. Uh, The Abbey Chicken says, Guardians 2 has all the heart I have left for Lord of the Rings. It's such joy. (laughs) Melissa says, I'm looking forward to the evening chats. I have a little one, so when she naps, I can hang out with you all. That's very good. And Jackie says, I can't wait for next week. I think it's probably fair to say that next week's reading um, will be one of the three most significant readings that we'll cover for the Fellowship of the Ring. Certainly, there's there's so much contained within that chapter, um, so much backstory, so much new perspective, just the interactions between Gandalf and Frodo are so, so strong. I can't wait to talk about all of that. Yes. Uh, Fina says, now you guys make me want to say, I am Groot. We should all say, I am Groot. And is it not true, as has been said by the sages of old, that we are Groot? No more Guardians of the Galaxy talk in this podcast at you guys. We've got to get to it. Let's begin then with uh, with the very beginning. Let's begin with the first passage from The Fellowship of the Ring, not counting the prefatory material. This is how this magnificent book starts. When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar, and he had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigor to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. At 90, he was much the same as at 50. At 99, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess apparently perpetual youth as well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth. It'll have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. I mentioned last time that one of the most interesting things about the beginning of this chapter is the literary tracking shot that we get across the Shire. It takes us, relatively speaking, a long time to get to Bilbo, to actually get to Bilbo and his POV. And even when we get to Bilbo, we're kept at something of a distance from him for a while. It takes a long time for the narrative to settle back into Bilbo's perspective, and that is completely intentional and used to, I think, beautiful effect. Here, we're given the literary equivalent of of a gliding saunter through the Shire. Here, we get a perspective, an outside perspective on Bilbo. We understand that he has been a figure of fame, a figure of some speculation, that he has been somewhat scandalous, at least that he has attracted a fair amount of criticism as well as attention. We understand from this opening passage that Bilbo's return from the Lonely Mountain was not forgiven and was not forgotten. 
he lost as the narrator of The Hobbit told us, as, as the narrator originally speculated about and then confirmed for us later in the story, he lost, in a sense, the respect of his neighbors, but he has gained something more curious, more interesting, and more unusual for a hobbit, which is simply fame. Bilbo Baggins remains unlike any other hobbit in the Shire. It's a really good pull, a really interesting piece of world building. It is fascinating to look at Bilbo in this context. And we're going to get two opportunities to look at Bilbo from this perspective. In this chapter, we get the perspective of the old guard, those hobbits who are closest to being peers of Bilbo's. We'll discuss that in just a moment. Then next week, we're going to get a reiteration of that scene. Some years hence, we're going to be able to look back at Bilbo, but also look at the consequence that Bilbo has had on society in the Shire. It seems as though Bilbo's return, the story of Bilbo Baggins, has had more consequence than is directly stated here in this first chapter, and certainly, curiously, much more, cons- uh, much more consequence than is suggested in the prefatory material. The glimpse of hobbits that we got in the prefatory material is somewhat static. It suggests that hobbit culture has been and has remained as it has been for, for many years prior, that, that hobbit society doesn't change terribly swiftly or or terribly often. But Bilbo has caused a change. He has caused ripples. And we'll get hints of that in this chapter, but we'll get almost an outright exploration of that as we move into chapter two. Um, Jackie says, I'm so glad he didn't call it Hobbitville. Hobbiton, much more traditionally English, I think. We're still leaning on this idea that that everything in the Shire is called by its name. And that's true, of course, throughout Tolkien's work. Um, as we discussed, you know, Beorn, for example, you know, names are simply conventional in a lot of Tolkien's work. There was a meme going around last week when we were talking about um, we were talking about Feanor, I believe, and, and talking then about Treebeard and the fact that one of these names is somewhat poetic and descriptive, and the other is very, very literal. But that's not entirely fair for Tolkien. Many of his names, most of his names, are completely literal because. In the old world, in medieval culture, that was how things were named. Names were representative rather than than poetic. That's true throughout Tolkien's writing. Even when we get into other cultures that have other languages, we can kind of refine those names backward. We can we can anchor them in real world languages uh, and find that they are oftentimes very very representative. But here in the Shire, of course, we have Hobbiton and we have Bywater and we have the Hill and we have all of these very very conventional and expected names, which speaks, I think, to the literal mind of the Hobbit that that. Hobbits are very straightforward. They like, as we learned in the prefatory material, they like books containing facts which are already known, laid out with no complication, with no confusion. They like things to be as literal and as simple as they can be, though that's perhaps not always entirely, entirely true. And certainly, they're suspicious, as we learn here in this opening passage, of those things which which appear even to challenge that frame, not even necessarily breaking that frame outright, but challenging that frame. It's odd that Bilbo Baggins returned with treasure. It's odd that, that these these stories are told of, of the hill being riddled with tunnels, stuffed with, with unimaginable riches, that, that he has reputedly inexhaustible wealth. But now, Bilbo is beginning to appear uncommonly well-preserved, that he is is not aging with the grace and dignity that we might expect of a hobbit of advancing years. Um, 
Fina says, Treebeard is Baumbart in German. I really like the alliteration. I really like that too. That's that's lovely. Yes. Uh, Die M says he uses so many names for each character too. Yes, we'll have the opportunity to talk about uh, names and naming. And certainly when we cover the Silmarillion, as we apparently inevitably will, names in the Silmarillion are incredibly important. Anytime something is named or a name is changed or or a name takes on a new a new facet, a new quality, that is that is something that we must track very, very carefully. That's particularly true, true in the Silmarillion. It's true even in The Hobbit, and it remains true in The Lord of the Rings. So we'll be paying close attention to names too, yes. Uh, Becca says, but he does a great job making even the obvious names beautiful, and I agree entirely. Yes. Good. Excellent. Yes. This is Carla. Carla. Hi, Carla. Carla says, Bombard is lovely. It is. It is. Uh, Karen says, also these literal names imply places known to everyone, i.e. all hobbits. Yes, because hobbits are somewhat insular, because they are somewhat... Hmm, parochial sounds a little judgmental, perhaps, but but they are very concerned with their own doings and not terribly concerned with with those events which take place outside of the bounds of the Shire. The the commonality of these names, the shared cultural context associated with these names, does serve to unify Hobbit culture. The water is referred to just as the water, because what other water could I possibly be referring to with capital T, capital W, you know? The hill, what other hill could I possibly mean? Of course, there are other hills in the world, but the hill will forever be the hill, because we all live here and we don't travel far. Traveling far, in fact, is something of which we ought to be wildly suspicious, which is one of the things that has attached itself to Bilbo's celebrity, to Bilbo's legend here. Um, Diane says, we're getting the translation of their Western names, though, right? Uh, Well, yes, the names, hmm, the degree to which there is translation happening here, the natural language of hobbits, that's an interesting point of, of speculation, particularly when we begin to move across the Shire, as we will, in just a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, good. All right, so that's our our first slide. That's our introduction. That's the establishing shot of the Shire, if you like. Here we get this narrative voice intruding to tell us what the people thought of Bilbo. But then we move in a little closer, and we don't move in all the way. We move in simply to Ham Gamgee. Here we go. He said very confidently before struggling to share the slide. There it is. No one had a more attentive audience than old Ham Gamgee, commonly known as the gaffer. He held forth at the ivy bush, a small inn on the Bywater Road, and he spoke with some authority, for he had tended the garden at Bag End for forty years, and had helped old Holman in the same job before that. Now that he was himself growing old and stiff in the joints, the job was mainly carried on by his youngest son, Sam Gamgee. Both father and son were on very friendly terms with Bilbo and Frodo. They lived on the hill itself, in number three Bagshot Row, just below Bag End. A very nice, well-spoken gentle hobbit is Mr. Bilbo, as I've always said, the gaffer declared, with perfect truth, for Bilbo was very polite to him, calling him Master Hamfast, and consulting him constantly upon the growing of vegetables. In the matter of roots, especially potatoes, the gaffer was recognized as the leading authority by all in the neighborhood, including himself. But what about this Frodo that lives with him? Asked old Noakes of Bywater. Baggins is his name, but he's more than half a brandy buck, they say. It beats me why any Baggins of Obedon should go looking for a wife away there in Buckland where folks are so queer. And no wonder they're queer, put in Daddy Twofoot, the gaffer's next door neighbor. If they live on the wrong side of the Brandywine River and right again the old forest, that's a dark bad place if half the tales be true. We're getting here, of course, not just an exploration of 
Bilbo's life and experience, not just an exploration of Bilbo's reputation in the community, but a perspective on hobbits and community, a perspective on the kind of conversations had by hobbits of the working classes. And that is crucial. We have to break this down right now so that we don't carry with us into the story any preconceived notions about Hobbit society and Hobbit culture. Hobbit society does seem to be fairly equitable. We don't have a sense of crime in the Shire, for example. We don't seem to have a sense of, of disenfranchisement or dispossession in the Shire, but we do very clearly have a quasi-feudalistic hierarchical social structure. There are gentle hobbits, there are effectively noble hobbits, and there are the hobbits of the working classes. Here we see absolutely, resolutely the latter. No one who is taking part in this discussion will be inside the tent during Bilbo's party. They will be out in the fields beyond. They will be hanging around the party tree. They will be present, invited, but not part of that core Group, As I've said before, this absolutely speaks to Tolkien's sense of what a well-adjusted and, and well-functioning society would look like. These blue-collar hobbits, if you like, are absolutely satisfied with their lot. They fulfill their social function perfectly and fulfill it, we're told, with pride. But no one expects Bilbo to treat Hamfast Gamgee as a peer. No one expects him to treat him as an equal. Indeed, it is a note in Bilbo's favor that he condescends to Ham Gamgee, to the gaffer, by saying, by calling him Master Hamfast and consulting him constantly upon the growing of vegetables. This is a sign of Bilbo's greatness. Bilbo is a gentle hobbit. He is of, of somewhat, and this is a little confused and confusing because we don't really break this down, but he is of something approaching noble birth. He is of one of the older families, certainly. He is an important hobbit. He is presumably a landowner. It's difficult to be sure where Bilbo's money comes from, apart from the treasure that he brought back from the East. Certainly, Bag End can't be easy to run. It can't be cheap to run. But we never get a sense of how it is that Bilbo and then Frodo make their money. What is Bag End? I mean, traditionally, in the kinds of societies and cultures that Tolkien is clearly referencing here, that would be the role that Bilbo would fill. He would be a landowner. He would have possibly tenant farmers. He would have some kind of agricultural investment himself. He would have some kind of, of holding in the local community, and that would give him this position of power and authority and, crucially, responsibility. But we never really explore that because, as has been said before, as has been said many times, Tolkien did not care about economics. He didn't care about how the society functioned. He cared about the structure of the society, the shape of the society itself. Um, as Princess Ostrich says in the YouTube chat, generally Shire economy is obscure. Yes, yes. Dylan the Joel says, just came in and we're talking about the Hobbit bourgeoisie. Sounds about right. Yes. <laughs> So this is absolutely crucial. It is absolutely crucial to understand that this class system breaks along a very clean line because this is going to inform the relationship between Sam and Frodo throughout the entire book. This is an inextricable part of their dynamic, that, that Frodo's kindness to Sam must be read as a, a positive condescension. It must be read as a willingness by Frodo to embrace someone who is of an innately lower class than he is. Otherwise, that relationship comes off particularly to American readers who aren't as aren't as familiar, you know, intuitively with the workings of a class system. Um, it comes off to American readers oftentimes as being somewhat one-sided, somewhat 
cruel even. I've seen some real criticism of Frodo in the rest of this book because he doesn't ever embrace Sam as a peer. But to embrace Sam as a peer would be in part to disrespect Sam. It would be to, it would be something akin to a, a cruel joke. It would be something akin to sarcasm to elevate Sam to, to Frodo's position, just as it would be something akin to a joke, something akin to sarcasm for Bilbo to, to elevate the gaffer to his own position. You are not like me, so I will treat you differently, but I will treat you with real respect. I will show you, I will call you Master Hamfast. I will call you, you know, by a name that, that, that communicates the respect I have for you and for your skill, but I won't be buddies with you. I won't be friends with you. Bilbo is not going to come into the ivy bush and sit down with Ham and have a drink and slap him on the shoulder and say, hey, what good times we have while you are gardening for me up at Bag End. That would... That would be transgressive. That would be a poor act on Bilbo's part. That would be, yeah, something approaching um, a, a sarcastic commentary on their 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 power differential, if you like, the, the, the differential between their levels of social power. Um, Karen says, condescension is a good thing in a society where everybody acknowledges the class differences. In a culture where we pretend there aren't any, it's insulting. That is beautifully put, Karen. You couldn't have put that better. Um, condescension is a great virtue. And... This is something we're going to return to, as we, particularly next week when we, we have um, a conversation that I'm really looking forward to about the nature of pity. We're going to talk a lot about pity next week. Pity and condescension are two terribly unfashionable virtues in the modern world because both presume an equitable arrangement, socially speaking. Both presume that that all men are created equal. Both presume, or, or at least let me let me recant that. Both condescension and pity acknowledge a social hierarchy. They acknowledge this class system in place. In the modern world where we pretend that we have done away with this class system, or if you are more optimistic and more, more humanist about this, you might believe that we actually have done away with the class system in certain instances. If that is true, then condescension and pity are more problematic. But within the structure of the Shire as it's presented to us, both condescension and pity are great. And, and by great, I mean genuinely noble, almost kingly virtues. Bilbo's condescension to the gaffer is a sign that he is a great hobbit, that he is a good man, that he is absolutely fulfilling his social obligation to, to the best of his abilities, which, of course, sits somewhat uncomfortably with the idea that Bilbo is something other than a good hobbit, that he is something other than a, a stalwart member of his community, that he disappeared off into the great beyond, was presumed dead, and then came back with treasure? Well, that's something that good hobbits don't do. But Bilbo's excellence resides, of course, in his virtue, not in his reputation. So while Bilbo, as we learned in The Hobbit, lost the respect of his neighbors, what he gained was a confidence and an ability to communicate with, with all sorts of people. Bilbo can put people at their ease. Bilbo is still good and great in both of those senses, I think. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Uh, Jackie says, Bilbo and the gaffer might not be close friends, but Bilbo shows him a high level of respect anyway, considering he's his gardener. That's an interesting, interesting use of the word master there. We're going to use master uh, twice in this chapter. We're going to use it once in its 
somewhat more conventional sense to indicate a person of youth. We're going to talk about a young hobbit at the party, a young male hobbit at the party who will be referred to as master to indicate his relative youth, to indicate that he is not yet an adult. But here we're using it in an older medieval sense. We're using it to, to communicate respect for a genuine master of his craft, that, that the, the gaffer is a master gardener, which is why Bilbo refers to him as, as Master Hamfast. What is interesting here is that Hamfast is not actually his name. Obviously, the gaffer isn't his name either. The gaffer is a mark of respect among working class hobbits. That simply means that he is the boss. It means that he is in a position of, of senior authority here. That, that's a mark of respect from blue collar hobbits to other blue collar hobbits, working class hobbits to other working class hobbits. That is never a nickname that, that Bilbo would use because he's not a part of that world. Again, it would be intrusive and maybe even appear a little sarcastic, if not outright rude. What's interesting is that Hamfest, as I said, is a nickname. Hamfest just means um, stay at home. It just means that, that, that you don't move, you, you're, you, are, you are held fast. You are, you are contained by your home. So even then, Bilbo is using a nickname. It's a nickname in common usage. He's not contracting it in the way that some other characters will. So it's, it's interesting to navigate these, these lines of social division here in the Shire. Um, let me see here. Um, there was a question here I wanted to get to. Shane asks, Mary is supposed to be very young in this chapter. So does he get an equal place with Frodo because he is a peer, even though he is much younger? Yes, Mary is a social peer of Frodo. He too is a gentle hobbit, but he is much younger. And we must remember this as we move into the rest of the book, particularly if your vision of these hobbits, of, of our core foursome, if you like, has been informed a lot by the movies. The movies completely dropped the ball on Frodo's age or... That's judgmental and not entirely fair, I guess. The movies decided that Frodo would be a peer to these other hobbits in terms of his age as well as his social standing. Frodo is much older than the other hobbits that are accompanying him. So we'll talk about that as we get to it. Yes. Um, yes. Jenna says, Shane, you can kind of see that Frodo treats Mary and even Pippin a little differently because they're younger. Yes. But they are still, they're still, you know, peers. They, they call Frodo by his name, just simply by his name. They don't call him Mr. Frodo. You know, Mary and Pippin are both of, of great houses, both of, of noble lineage. Yes. Um, Sabrina says, I still really struggle with this, I have to say. It's not so much the social niceties. It's when people think certain other people are inherently better. I just can't follow along. Sabrina, that it is an entirely modern perspective. I think that that I can understand that from a, a modern, you know, sense of, uh, in accordance with modern sensibilities, it is disharmonious with our modern, uh, our modern sense of how cultures can and should operate. But it absolutely is consistent with, with Tolkien's medieval and then even Victorian view of the world, particularly his view of agrarian England. So I completely understand not being comfortable with it. Um, and we must remember that, that even while... Sam is resolutely of this, this working class, you know, segment of society, of Hobbit culture. He is still completely celebrated. Sam is, is honored and respected by the other characters and by the, the, the narrative itself. So this is not a way of saying that, that if it makes it any easier, we might think of it like this. Think of it not simply as, as better or worse, but just different. That that the working class hobbits are hobbits who work primarily with their hands and the upper class hobbits are hobbits which don't. They're in a more kind of, of let's say, managerial position. The skills that are required and expected of them are different, but it doesn't, it doesn't dehumanize, de-hobbitize 
Sam or the gaffer or any of the other um, any of the other working class hobbits that we see. I know I'm spending a long time on this, but we absolutely have to have this, you know, in our minds as we move forward, or we'll we'll trip over it just constantly. Yeah. Um, yeah, Diane says Bilbo does teach Sam his letters, though that's considered subversive by Hamfest. Though he does this out. I think I saw something. Mm, perhaps I have I have lost it here. Um, but it is true that he says meaning no harm, which is really interesting because on the one hand, the gaffer doesn't hold Bilbo. Hmm, he he doesn't see it as a negative act that Bilbo taught Sam to read. But the phrasing of the statement suggests that it may be thought an inherently negative thing by other hobbits in the room. That the gaffer here is giving Bilbo a little more, a little more leniency. Uh, he, he is giving Bilbo a little more freedom. He is he is accepting Bilbo's kindness in this regard as as a positive gesture rather than as something societally subversive. Though it may well be the case that Bilbo's intent was to be somewhat, at least, societally subversive. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, Jackie says, I love the gaffer knows. I, I love that the gaffer hopes Sam knowing his letters won't get him in trouble. Yes, good. Okay, let's uh, push on because so far I have covered two slides and I have many, many more slides to cover, but that's a big one. Let's pick up with the conversation with the stranger from Mickle Dalving talking about Bilbo's treasure. There's a tiny bit of money tucked up there, I hear tell, said a stranger, a visitor on business from Mickle Delving in the West Farthing. All on the top of your hill is full. All the top of your hill is full of tunnels packed with chests of gold and silver and jewels, by what I've heard. And you've heard more than I can speak to, answered the gaffer. I know nothing about I'm losing track of my accents here, too many characters. I know nothing about jewels. Mr. Bilbo is free with his money, and there seems no lack of it, and I know of no tunnel making. I saw Mr. Bilbo when he came back a matter of 60 years ago when I was a lad. I'd not long come prentice to old Holman, him being my dad's cousin, but he had me up at Bag End helping him keep folks from trampling and trespassing all over the garden while the cell was on. And in the middle of it all, Mr. Bilbo comes up the hill with a pony and some mighty big bags and a couple of chests. I don't know, they were mostly full of treasure he'd picked up in foreign parts, but there'd be mountains of gold, they say. But there wasn't enough to fill tunnels. But my lad Sam's will know more about that. He's in and out of Bag End. Crazy about stories of the old days he is, and he listens to all Mr. Bilbo's tales. Mr. Bilbo's learned him his letters, meaning no harm, mark you, but I hope no harm will come of it. Elves and dragons, I says to him. Cabbages and potatoes are better for me and you. Don't go getting mixed up in the business of your betters or you'll land in trouble too big for you, I says to him. And I might say it to others, he added with a look at the stranger and the miller. But the gaffer did not convince his audience. The legend of Bilbo's wealth was now too firmly fixed in the minds of the younger generation of hobbits. This is, of course, the quote that we were just discussing about Bilbo teaching Sam his letters, which... I just adore, I just adore this detail. I adore that that Sam has learned his letters from Bilbo, that Sam is already enchanted by stories. That will be one of the definitive things that we'll learn about Sam very, very early in the book. Cabbages and potatoes are better than better than elves and dragons. Um, did I say cabbages and potatoes are better than elves and potatoes? Ah, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> Jackie says, don't go getting mixed up in the business of your betters. Good grief, this is hard for this American. Yes. Again, I think that that obviously um, social mobility and a flat social hierarchy are things to be dearly desired. I think that there are, um, <laughs> I think when I argue 
in favor of, and that's even a weird way to put it, when I discuss the social hierarchy evident in the Shire, I'm aware that it may sound as though this is something that I personally support. I would say that this runs fairly explicitly contrary to my personal politics, but that's neither here nor there. It is a fundamental part of Hobbit culture, and we just have to kind of accept it and see through to the kindness that underpins it. Here we have the gaffer being generous and kind to Bilbo, being generous and kind to Sam, because Bilbo has been in turn generous and kind to both of them. He is defending, yes. Elves and dragons, I say to him, cabbages and potatoes are better for me and you. Don't go getting mixed up in the business of your betters or you'll land in trouble too big for you, I says to him, and I might say it to others, he added with a look at the stranger and the miller. And it might be worth pulling out the miller here. The stranger, of course, represents the unknown world. The strangers are always going to be notable, even if they've just come from Mickle Delving. Strangers are always going to be surprising in Hobbiton, or at least objects of curiosity. The miller is interesting because in quasi-medieval cultures, the miller was a figure of economic power in a way that no other hobbits appear to be figures of economic power. The miller controls the flow of flour. The mill, you don't need more than one mill. It is impractical for each farm to have its own particular mill. So instead, the miller becomes one of the first kind of agrarian economic mediators. Power, money, flows through the mill. And the miller, therefore, has a surprising amount of power in the local community. The miller can decide if this farmer gets to grind first or this other farmer gets to grind first, or whether some farmers just don't get to grind at all. The miller holds a great deal of temporal power, which is one of the reasons, I think, that the gaffer is suspicious of the miller. And, of course, we'll circle around to... to hmm. For those of you who haven't yet read The Lord of the Rings, I should say that we... We delve deeply into the Shire right up front and then right at the very end. And we don't really talk that much about the Shire in between. We don't really talk about Hobbit culture in between, except in passing through the, the lens and the perspective of the individual Hobbits in the story. But a lot of what we cover here in the first couple of chapters is going to be very relevant right at the end of the book. And I feel as though when we get to the end of the book, you know, a year from now, we might circle back around and just do a little recap, a, a little gloss of the first couple of chapters and maybe even the prefatory material too, just to remind us of what the Shire is really like before we becomes, before we, we get a different perspective on the Shire at the end of the story. Yeah. Um, uh, Jenna says, Jenna has here uh, the start of a really interesting thought that we will definitely talk about next week. The way the generations break down in the Shire is really interesting. We have the old folks who are very set in their ways and the young folk. Yes, we do. When we look at the conversation, the equivalent of this conversation that Sam is having next week, we're going to see a very different perspective on stories and storytelling and the role of a good hobbit and, and so on and so forth. And it is really interesting to speculate that one of the major contributory factors to this spirit of, I guess, evolution rather than revolution. We're, we're not looking at, you know, uh, uh, the Hobbit version of, of Generation X or the Hobbit version of, of the civil rights movement or any of these, you know, major breaking points in contemporary culture. Rather, we're looking at a shift from, from a slightly more staid and slightly more insular world to a slightly less staid and slightly less insular world. That may well be attributable to the presence of Bilbo Baggins himself. Certainly his return from the wild is, as far as we can tell from everything we're given to judge it, completely unprecedented. 
it is a scandal for for a Baggins to go and and marry someone from a different part of the Shire. You know, we we get the whole scandalous story of of uh, Frodo's father being drowned and how this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. The quality of Bilbo's experience is completely different, comprehensively different, is exponentially greater. And it's fascinating to think of the effect that, that Bilbo may have had in his return, that he may have told stories and, and inspired either directly or indirectly this young generation of impressionable hobbits. And we'll certainly get a sense from Frodo, from Merry, from Pippin, and from Sam to a different degree, that Bilbo has played a large part in their embracing of what we would have considered outright, you know, tookishness, that they have embraced adventure in a way that their parents and grandparents and generations back into the, the distant mists of history would never have embraced. Bilbo's experience has had a lasting effect on his culture. And if you've been following my discussion over on uh, Storms on the Way, the podcast that I do dedicated to American gods, then you'll have heard me talk a little about the difference between myth and story, that, that myths are simply stories which become so powerful that they leave an impression on their host culture. It's easy at this point, I think, to begin to talk about Bilbo in mythic terms, and certainly we'll get the opportunity to jump forward to that right at the beginning of next week's reading. Um, good. <laughs> Nicole says, give us this day our daily bread and pray our Miller doesn't grow too big for his britches. Yes. It's fascinating the number of the number of uh, Historical texts that you can go back into basically from the medieval period up to the rise of industrialization in the Victorian period. It's amazing the number of, of, of evil millers you can find, the number of disreputable millers you can find, the number of millers who are, are holding communities hostage or are just themselves shady, who are just themselves bad people. Uh, the, the way that the miller embodied economic and social power is absolutely fascinating. So, and, and particularly, of course, I'm talking about stories rather than history, but yes. Um, nonetheless, Millers are trouble. Yeah. Um, mm. Carla says, I find this so interesting. We have a history of class differences in Portugal, but that ended in 1910 with the Republic. I can certainly understand it in fiction, though I don't want it in reality. That actually, I think, is, is worth pausing on for a moment, Carla. I think you're absolutely right that what we're given in the Shire is very much a perfected form of this simple feudalism. You know, this is a kind of two-tier, uh, somewhat bureaucratic kind of feudalism. You know, we don't have kings and dukes and counts and earls. We, we don't have that kind of established hierarchical system leading all the way up to, at the pinnacle of the hierarchy, of course, God. We don't really get that in the Shire. This is, this is a very simple two-tier system, but it is still somewhat idyllic. We are looking at this, the agrarian idyll of England with rose-colored glasses. It didn't ever really work like this. There was never a system in which all the working class hobbits were completely fulfilled and there was no crime and no poverty and everybody was perfectly happy with their place and no one sought to, to better their station. That, historically speaking, just didn't happen. So we should very carefully, you know, differentiate between the fictional version of this, of this medieval ideal and the actual reality, which was, of course, much more harsh, much more difficult for, for those who found themselves at the bottom of, of the, uh, the bottom of the social order there. Good. Um, yeah, Karen says, it's remarkable how there is no top tier at all to Hobbit hierarchy. Absolutely true. One of the things that you might note about the Lord of the Rings is that there isn't even a 
any kind of, of, of theological framework for the hobbits. There's really no sense that the hobbits have any theology at all. So there isn't even a you know, religious cap to their social hierarchy. There's no sense in which Bilbo has been, you know, appointed by divine right, for example, which is the loophole that gets you to feudal systems throughout the medieval period. Rather, this is, this is, as I said, a more kind of bureaucratic uh, system. It is archaic, but it is also more modern than the real life historical versions of these these structures so it's yeah a little a little complicated um carlos says exactly this only works in this only works because it's fiction this is utopia yes good good all right let's keep moving on um yes elves and dragons we can leave that behind for now and we can mark instead the coming of a familiar character days passed and the day drew nearer an odd-looking wagon laden with odd-looking packages rolled into Hobbiton one evening and toiled up the hill to Bag End. The startled hobbits peered out of lamp-lit doors to gape at it. It was driven by outlandish folk singing strange songs, dwarves with long beards and deep hoods. A few of them remained at Bag End. At the end of the second week in September, a cart came in through Bywater from the direction of the Brandywine Bridge in broad daylight. An old man was driving it all alone. He wore a tall, pointed blue hat, a long gray cloak, and a silver scarf. He had a long white beard and bushy eyebrows that stuck out beyond the brim of his hat. Small hobbit children ran after the cart all through Hobbiton and right up the hill. It had a cargo of fireworks, as they rightly guessed. At Bilbo's front door, the old man began to unload. There were great bundles of fireworks of all sorts and shapes, each labeled with a large red G and the elf rune. That was Gandalf's mark, of course, and the old man was Gandalf the wizard, whose fame in the Shire was due mainly to his skill with fires, smokes, and lights. His real business was far more difficult and dangerous, but the Shire folk knew nothing about it. To them, he was just one of the attractions at the party, hence the excitement of the Hobbit children. Gee for grand, they shouted, and the old man smiled. They knew him by sight, though he only appeared in Hobbiton occasionally and never stopped long, but neither they nor any but the oldest of their elders had ever seen one of his firework displays. They now belonged to a legendary past. Shane asks in the YouTube chat, did Gandalf borrow the Elven King's eyebrow support system? I want to think about this for just a second, for just a second to hear his eyebrows that stick out beyond the brim of his hat. That has to be, by most depictions of Gandalf, a good foot, we'd say, a good solid foot of, of protruding eyebrow. That's impressive. And now I have a whole new goal for my life. I just think I need to cultivate these eyebrows. It's the only thing. <laughs> Oh, we're getting some questions about Iluvatar in Hobbit lore. Um, we know that the Hobbits know some of the stories, but Iluvatar, the the Ainulindale, the Silmarillion, of course, these stories are from an Elvish perspective. They are they are Elven in nature, Elven in focus. So they don't track exactly to um, to Hobbit experience. So no, it doesn't seem as though Hobbits. I mean, it doesn't seem as though hobbits worship at all. It doesn't seem as though hobbits worship Iluvatar. The worshipping Iluvatar is very different. One of the things notable in their absence from the pages of the Lord of the Rings is any kind of, of church, any kind of temple, any kind of religious space. There don't appear to be all of Middle-earth. People don't go to church to worship Iluvatar. That's fascinating and curious, but it does make it very difficult to distinguish between those who quietly worship Iluvatar in their own way and those who don't. There isn't a clean kind of, of social order here. So here we have the return of um, 
the return of Gandalf. Becca Eller asks in the YouTube chat, does this mean the Hobbit children can read? They know at least one letter. They seem to, at least, they seem to understand that this is, is Gandalf's letter, and they seem to understand also that G stands for grand. So presumably, though these Hobbit children Given that they are free to run after the cart in the middle of the day, in the broad daylight, this cart coming from Bywater, it may indicate that these are the children of noble families. It may indicate that these are not blue-collar hobbit children. So it is possible that the, the children of noble families would, in fact, have been taught their letters, that they would, in fact, have been taught to read. We seem to be scandalized by the idea that Sam has been taught to read. But certainly there's no question mark over whether or not Frodo, for example, can read. Jackie says he was just entertainment. Goodness, the hobbits are so clueless. Yes, yes, they are. They don't know a lot about the world outside. It's interesting to note, too, here, um, right at the end of the second paragraph, uh, the children are chasing after Gandalf. They know him. They knew him by sight, though he only appeared in Hobbiton occasionally and never stopped long. But neither they nor any but the oldest of their elders had seen one of, their, one of his firework displays. They now belong to a legendary past. We're talking about children here. So that means in order for them to know Gandalf by sight, he must have been a fairly frequent visitor to the Shire over the course of the last few years. So his appearance here is not entirely unexpected, which explains why, in part, the excitement is directed on the on the the fireworks rather than on you know the appearance of this strange man from outside of the shire certainly we're focused on the dwarves no one seems to care too much about what the dwarves are carrying up to bag end because hey there are dwarves and that's weird enough but a wizard showing up gandalf the wizard showing up in the shire isn't worthy of the same kind of comment and remark Yes. Gene says, uh, we got into Iluvatar based on trying to figure out why Sam would use lore, short for Lord, as an expression for not, if not referring to a deity. Oh, I missed that in the YouTube chat. You guys are, are of course, uh, chatty and, and prolific today. Um, that's interesting. That I have always read as a fragment, a remnant of Tolkien's desire to represent, um, to represent Sam's dialect. Um, we see hints of that throughout. Tolkien has a very careful and astute ear for voice and for dialect. Um, one of the best examples of that, let me cancel this slide. One of the best examples of that in this chapter is Ham Gamgee's use of jewels, J-O-O-L-S, as he's talking to the stranger from Mickle Dalving. And there's no real reason why Tolkien wouldn't use the word jewels, except, well, I think there are two reasons why Tolkien wouldn't use the word jewels. The most obvious is simply that this is this is dialectual, that, that he is representing literally on the page a, a mispronunciation of the word common to this particular dialect. We don't say jewels, we say jewels. That's interesting enough, and I think that communicates a great deal about character, but for me it also communicates something else. It may suggest to us that jewels is an unfamiliar word for these hobbits, that they don't really have a context. They don't really have call to use the word jewels terribly often, so it gets contracted and muddied and, and is just somewhat less precise than it would otherwise be. Why would hobbits have any need to talk about jewels? They wouldn't use them economically for storing large amounts of wealth. They wouldn't trade them. We don't really get a sense of hobbits mining things, though presumably there is some kind of, of mining operation in the Shire so that they can produce the metal that they need for their very simple machines, though perhaps they simply trade for that too. Jewels, as distinct from gold and silver, gold and silver have general applicable uses just, just in the language. You know, gold is a color, silver is a color, we use them metaphorically fairly freely, and we refer to actual gold and actual silver, even in the Shire, presumably. 
the, whether they have coins or not, whether they have an established financial system, all of these things, eh, who knows? He wasn't terribly interested, the professor, as I say. So that, that aside, jewels, though, speak to a very different kind of engagement with, with wealth and with riches. So that may indicate that that's an uncommon word for the gaffer to be using and the, or, or the stranger from Mickle Delving to be using and the gaffer to be repeating. So that may be why we're kind of leaning against the idea that he would pronounce it with two syllables. So both dialect and culture, I think, can inform that. So we're very, Tolkien is very careful and very, very astute in his use of language. It may be that this exists simply to to speak to that notion of, of Sam's dialect, to speak to the notion of, of a kind of dialectual framework within the Shire. Um, we'll talk a little more about Sam's dialect when we get to it, sure. Um, let me see here. Yeah, Gene says, Sam using lore feels more authentic than when contemporary authors slip in Christ as an expression in words that shouldn't, in worlds that shouldn't have Jesus. So, yeah, yeah. Um, basically, any fantasy world that uses contemporary profanity drives me crazy. Um, or when I say contemporary profanity, I don't just mean swear words that we use in the modern world, but swear words that are dependent upon a contextual framing of, of the modern world. I've seen it done. It's it's not good. It's not good. All right, let's. Um, yeah, good. Let's keep moving. Um, oh, I should say, uh, let me let me call out here for those of you who are curious. Um, the large letter G and the elf rune, whatever that elf rune is, these are in the runic alphabets, Tengwar and Kurth. They, they are both elven. Uh, one of the curious um, things about this, this sentence here is that the emphasis on the elf rune is put on the second, but the Tengwar runes are also elven. So... I don't know why we're paying, I guess simply because they're more familiar. I think here we're using elf not as uh, an actual functional descriptor. We're not saying that these are the runes of the elves. We might be using elf here in, in one of its more colloquial uh, uses, that is just simply to mean strange or otherworldly, that it is an elf rune. It is, it is odd and unfamiliar in that sense. Um, let's look at... I can advance my slide. This is our first introduction to Bilbo within the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Inside Bag End, Bilbo and Gandalf were sitting in the open window of a small room looking out west onto the garden. The late afternoon was bright and peaceful. The flowers glowed red and golden, snapdragons and sunflowers and nasturtiums trailing all over the turf walls and peeping in at the round windows. How bright your garden looks, said Gandalf. Yes, said Bilbo. I'm very fond of it indeed and of all the dear old Shire, but I think I need a holiday. You mean to go on with your plan then? I do. I made up my mind months ago and I haven't changed it. Very well. It is no good saying any more. Stick to your plan, your whole plan, mind, and I will hope it turns out for the best, for you and for all of us. I hope so. Anyway, I mean to enjoy myself on Thursday and have my little joke. Who will laugh, I wonder, said Gandalf, shaking his head. We shall see, said Bilbo. I mentioned earlier how this literary tracking shot slowly, slowly draws us in to Bilbo's POV. And this is an example of that because here's Bilbo. He's right here in the scene. Here's Gandalf, who we know fairly well by this point too, right here in the scene. And yet they are talking obliquely. They are not speaking plainly. And we are certainly not getting the the whole complexity of their plan and discussion. We don't get a narrative intrusion here to tell us what they are talking about. We are still held at arm's length, even from Bilbo. So we're we're getting closer and closer and closer, but we are not there yet. 
the whole plan, mind. We'll circle back around to that after the party. Let's, um, oh, I do want to talk about, actually, before we, before we move on from this slide, I want to call out nasturtions right there in the first paragraph, because nasturtions is fascinating. That word should be nasturtiums. Nasturtiums was uh, a word used by a gardener at Oxford that Tolkien took and, and asserted to be true much like Bilbo and the gaffer. Here, Tolkien paid a great deal of attention and gave a great deal of respect to this gardener at Oxford. The gardener said that these plants were called nasturtiums and that nasturtiums properly referred to something else. That, it turns out, isn't true. The OED lists nasturtium as a corruption of nasturtium. What's fascinating about this is that this is, this is a battlefield for, Tol uh, for Tolkien. The word nasturtium was a fight that he had with a senior proofreader from Alan and Unwin, the publisher. This senior proofreader was constantly correcting Tolkien's prose incorrectly. He was constantly making mistakes and showing uh, a lack of respect for Tolkien's prose and Tolkien's purpose. Tolkien describes him in a letter to uh, Kathleen, uh, Catherine Farrer from 1954 as a highly educated pedant. And he says, quote, I was put to the trouble of proving to him his own ignorance as well as rebuking his impertinence. So though I do not much care, I dug my toes in on nasturtiums. So this was a fight that Tolkien had with his proofreader. Turns out Tolkien was not actually correct. Should be nasturtiums. And yet because this was a knockdown, drag out fight with the proofreader, it remains in editions of The Lord of the Rings even to this day. I kind of love that detail. I can just imagine. I mean, firstly... How confident in your skill do you have to be to correct Tolkien's prose at all? Secondly, can you imagine the professor rebuking you for your impertinence when it comes to, to the corrections that you've made to his manuscript? That could not have been pretty. I think I'm just going to have nightmares about that from, from now on. We must, uh, highly educated pedant, says Dylan the Joel, may actually be my new favorite phrase. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. <laughs> All right, let's uh, move on. We're, we're going to skip ahead the party preparations themselves. Obviously, I love the detail. The detail is beautiful. And there's a great deal that we can learn about life in the Shire, life in Hobbiton, and life as a friend or relative or an associate of Bilbo Baggins. His life is is somewhat magical, I guess, by by Hobbit standards. But instead, we're going to jump ahead to the actual um, the actual speech. My dear Bagginses and Boffins, he began again. My dear Tooks and Brandybucks and Grubs and Chubs and Burrowses and Hornblowers and Bulgers and Bracegirdles, Good Bodies, Brockhouses and Proudfoots. Proud feet, shouted an elderly hobbit from the back of the pavilion. His name, of course, was Proudfoot, and well merited. His feet were large, exceptionally furry, and both were on the table. Proudfoots, repeated Bilbo. Also my good Sackville Bagginses that I welcome back at last to Bag End. Today is my 111th birthday. I am 11 today. Hooray! Hooray! Many happy returns, they shouted, and they hammered joyously on the tables. Bilbo was doing splendidly. This was the sort of stuff they liked, short and obvious. I hope you're all enjoying yourselves as much as I am. Deafening cheers, cries of yes and no, noises of trumpets and horns, pipes and flutes and other musical instruments. There were, as has been said, many young hobbits present. 
Hundreds of musical crackers had been pulled. Most of them bore the mark Dale on them, which did not convey much to most of the hobbits, but they all agreed they were marvelous crackers. They contained instruments, small but of perfect make and enchanting tones. Indeed, in one corner, some of the young tooks and brandybucks, supposing Uncle Bilbo to have finished, since he had plainly said all that was necessary, now got up an impromptu orchestra and began a merry dance tune. Master Everard Took and Miss Melalot Brandybuck. Melalot Brandybuck? I'm just realizing for the first time that I'm unsure how to pronounce that. Miss Melalot Brandybuck got on the table with bells on their and, and with bells on their hands began to dance the Springle Ring, a pretty dance, but rather vigorous. So here we have a perspective on the young hobbits enjoying themselves at the party. We also get a perspective on the other hobbits at the party. We must remember that everyone in the tent, everyone that Bilbo is addressing now is a social peer. None of the working class hobbits have made it this far. So when we say that this was the sort of stuff they liked, short and obvious, we are not being critical of the working classes. We are not being critical of, you know, the, the, the great unwashed mass of hobbits. We are talking about people who are actually Bilbo's social peers. As, as Jackie says, the female version of Merry and Pippin, folks. Yes, I like that. Um, <laughs> Valerie says, I'm appreciative of all the references to Bilbo's adventure, Dale, etc. I love not just that this is a reference to Bilbo's adventure, um, though clearly it, it's, it's rather wonderful that we're drawing this back in. But we're also seeing the restoration of life in the East. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of, of The Hobbit, we're told that one of the greatest things about that region, about Erebor and Dale, was the creation of fabulous toys. Indeed, the narrator uh, almost supposes at that point that the toys of Dale were one of the things that attracted the, great, the attention of Smaug the Great. So it's wonderful to see here that in the aftermath of Bilbo's adventure, in the aftermath of the slaying of Smaug and the Battle of Five Armies and everything that has happened in that part of the world, in that part of the wild, that things are getting back to normal now. And we can also suppose, of course, that these crackers were brought by the dwarves who appeared in the previous slide, that, that this, this is part of the, the party supplies that were ordered there. Yes. Yes, good. And as Angela says here, was Dale rebuilt? Certainly, that seems to be the implication, doesn't it? I mean, it may be that, that Dale is used as a stamp because Lake Town is a little less effective, though it's unclear what remains of Lake Town in the aftermath of, of Smaug's you know, reign of destruction, his, his devastation there. It may be that they rebuilt Lake Town. It may be that they rebuilt Dale. It may be that they rebuilt both. It may be that they built an entirely new settlement, though certainly... My instinct would be, given the way that that displaced communities tend to return to their ancestral homes in in the work of, of Tolkien, my speculation would be that, yes, they rebuilt Dale with the help of King Dian in, in the Lonely Mountain. Good. Yes. The dwarves totally brought those instruments, says Heroes and Bards. Yes. Yes. Good. And again, that's a nice little reference, too, because, again, we have a group of dwarves showing up to Bag End armed only with musical instruments. They, you know, didn't bring other party supplies that they're showing up again with, with musical instruments, which I adore. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's, um, let's take a look at this. So this is, as I say, basically the, the framework for the, the speech. This is our introduction. We get beautiful, you know, I believe that it was um, during the writing of The Lord of the Rings that, that Tolkien began to refer to this kind of thing as, as hobbitry. Basically, hobbits being hobbits. Hobbits being cute and comedic and, and somewhat goofy and engaging and lovely. This is hobbitry. You know, the, the proud foots, proud feet. This is hobbits being hobbits, and I rather adore it. 
Then we get to the actual point. It is also, if I may be allowed to refer to ancient history, the anniversary of my arrival by barrel at Esgaroth on the Long Lake. But the fact that it was my birthday slipped my memory on that occasion. I was only 51 then, and birthdays did not seem so important. The banquet was very splendid, however, though I had a bad cold at the time, I remember, and could only say, thank you very much. I now repeat it more correctly. Thank you very much for coming to my little party. Obstinate silence. They all feared that a song or some poetry was now imminent, and they were getting bored. Why couldn't he stop talking and let them drink his health? But Bilbo did not sing or recite. He paused for a moment. Thirdly, and finally, he said, I wish to make an announcement. He spoke that last word so loudly and suddenly that everyone sat up who still could. I regret to announce that though, as I said, 111 years is far too short a time to spend among you, this is the end. I am going. I am leaving now. Goodbye. He stepped down and vanished. There was a blinding flash of light and the guests all blinked. When they opened their eyes, Bilbo was nowhere to be seen. 144 flabbergasted hobbits sat back speechless. Old Odo Proudfoot removed his feet from the table and stamped. Then there was a dead silence, until suddenly, after several deep breaths, every Baggins, Boffin, Took, Brandybuck, Grub, Chub, Burrows, Bulger, Bracegirdle, Brockhouse, Good Buddy, Hornblower, and Proudfoot began to talk at once. Heroes and Bards in the YouTube chat says, best mic drop ever. Jackie says, I'm so old, guys. My adventures, ancient history. <laughs> a lot of people calling out the mic drop. It is fantastic. Yes, ancient history equals my life. I love the, uh, the, the, hmm, the sarcasm, the, the irony, the heavy irony, at least with which Bilbo must say that. If I may be allowed to refer to ancient history, how many times has Bilbo seen rolled eyes? How many times has Bilbo heard heavy sighs as he begins to talk about his adventure in the East? So we should note that it was Bilbo's birthday as he arrived at Esgaroth on the Long Lake, as he arrived at Lake Town. And of course, because we have so recently read The Hobbit, we are very familiar with the fact that he had a terrible head cold at the time and said, thank you very much. It's a lovely beat. It's a lovely reference. We pull all of these elements back in together. And it is, of course, so Tolkienian to remember that that was Bilbo's birthday, to work out exactly where in the adventure Bilbo would have celebrated his birthday. I, I just, just adore it. Yes. 144 flabbergasted hobbits, says Jenna Kantz. New band name, I call it. <laughs> I like that very much. Karen says, 144 flabbergasted hobbits is among the great Tolkienian phrases. I love that. Yes. I do like, uh, Valerie says, I do like how gross is a bad word for naming hobbits. Uh, a vulgar word, certainly. It's also very interesting to, to think a little about, uh, and perhaps this is nitpicking a little too much, but interesting to think about the invitation list because there are 144 flabbergasted hobbits. That means that Bilbo invited 144 hobbits, which is what we were told, but we might also have suspected that Gandalf's name was on the list, and there are three dwarves here somewhere. So perhaps they are invited to the party, or perhaps they are relegated out to the party field beyond the Great Tent, and they're celebrating around the party tree with presumably Sam Gamgee, who is never mentioned at the party, but who, well, it's impossible to think of a party thrown in, in Hobbiton that Sam wouldn't have attended. And, and we know from later that, that Sam will look very fondly on the party tree and will have memories of, of that, you know, of this experience, I guess, in, in the present. So 144 esteemed hobbits invited into the tent, plus Gandalf, plus some dwarves, and of course, plus Bilbo himself. Yeah. 
this is fascinating. Oh, I love this. Fina says, Bilbo's speech kind of gives me the feeling he was always something like a super intelligent hobbit who is always a bit lonely because of his intellect. That's that's genuinely fascinating. I'd never thought of that before. Yes, he's certainly poking fun. And and I wish that I could have pulled a slide, but for reasons which are apparent now that I'm an hour into this and still have a number of slides to get through, I couldn't pull the slide where I talked, uh, uh, where we discuss the gifts that Bilbo has sent uh, along with the notes. I would love to do a breakdown of that. Maybe if I, if I find the time and if you guys are interested, I can incorporate that into the listener feedback uh, show that I'll do next week. Um, because the notes themselves are just fantastic. And breaking down these somewhat pointed, somewhat playful, somewhat satirical, and yet apparently somewhat well-intentioned notes. Fina, I think you might be absolutely right. I think we may be seeing uh, evidence here that Bilbo is a wise hobbit, but also a fiercely intelligent hobbit. Yes. Good. Good. I love the gifts, says Princess Ostrich. I love the gifts too, but unfortunately, yes, we just couldn't uh, We just couldn't do it. Jackie says, Bilbo couldn't resist making a complete spectacle of his departure, much to Gandalf's displeasure. Well, hey, let's get to that, shall we? Because at this point, Bilbo returns home. He walked briskly back to his hall and stood for a moment listening with a smile to the din in the pavilion and to the sounds of merrymaking in other parts of the field. Then he went in. He took off his party clothes, folded up and wrapped in tissue paper his embroidered silk waistcoat and put it away. Then he put on quickly some old untidy garments and fastened round his waist a worn leather belt. On it he hung a short sword in a battered black leather scabbard. From a locked drawer smelling of mothballs, he took out an old cloak and hood. They had been locked up as if they were very precious, but they were so patched and weather-stained that their original color could hardly be guessed. It might have been a dark green. They were rather too large for him. He then went out into his study, and from a large strong box took out a bundle wrapped in old cloths and a leather-bound manuscript, and also a large bulky envelope. The book and bundle he stuffed into the top of a heavy bag that was standing there already nearly full. Into the envelope he slipped his golden ring and its fine chain, and then sealed it and addressed it to Frodo. At first he put it on the mantelpiece, but suddenly he removed it and stuck it in his pocket. At that moment the door opened and Gandalf came quickly in. "'Hello,' said Bilbo. "'I wondered if you would turn up.' I'm glad to find you visible, replied the wizard, sitting down in a chair. I wanted to catch you and have a few final words. I suppose you feel that everything has gone off splendidly and according to plan. Yes, I do, said Bilbo. Though that flash was surprising, it quite startled me, let alone the others. A little addition of your own, I suppose. Just in case we were wondering whether the ring now caused a flash when Bilbo turned invisible, it didn't. Gandalf added a little something extra to his trick. Here, well, okay, let's first talk about the hood and the cloak, because this is so beautifully done. Throughout this section, as as Bilbo returns from the party to his home, we get that palpable sense of distance and absence. And if you've ever had that experience where you're you're throwing a party in a garden or you're throwing a party in your house and you steal away for a moment to a quiet part of the house and you can hear the distant party, you can hear the celebration, but right now where you are is peaceful and quiet and serene. And you feel sometimes oddly disconnected. You feel some, sometimes oddly almost uh, as though the world is, is different. The world is new, as though the intrusion of these sounds has somehow refreshed your perspective on your environment. I love the way that we are, are made to feel exactly that through this first paragraph. And that reaches its culmination as Bilbo takes from the drawer the old hood and cloak 
This is the hood and cloak that he wore throughout The Hobbit. This is Dwalin's hood and cloak that were given to him and in which he felt faintly ridiculous. Remember, he was thrilled at the time that he couldn't possibly be mistaken for a dwarf because he didn't have a beard. To be mistaken for a dwarf would have been the worst thing. Now, here, he doesn't care about presentation. He doesn't care how he looks. These things are important to him, so he wears them. And that is just... Mm, just gorgeous. I, I completely love it. What's most important, though, about this slide, what's most important about this beat is that this is the first moment at which the ring itself intrudes on the narrative. Now, we talked a little about the intrusion of the ring during The Hobbit, particularly during the second revision of The Hobbit, after chapter five was changed to update Gollum to a version of the character that we will be more familiar with as we read the next chapter of The Lord of the Rings, um, a, a more Lord of the Rings consistent version of Gollum and the ring. But this is the first moment, I would argue, in which the ring actively suggests a course of action to Bilbo. The ring manipulates Bilbo. It does it very quietly. It does it very subtly. But here he moves to put the ring on the mantle and then takes it off and puts it back in his pocket. And in a moment, we'll be surprised that that is what he has done. The ring is acting through Bilbo. And we must understand from this early point in the story how effectively the ring can manipulate. And the ring manipulates in two ways. It will inspire action that, that, that is seemingly attributable to a positive motivation that, that, you know, we'll get moments later where Frodo will be urged to take action. He will be urged towards safety by the presence of the ring, except that is not safety. That would reveal him to the Nazgul and, and to other threats against him. But the ring will also twist and manipulate and, and coerce. The ring will cause the character bearing the ring or the character who wants the ring to give voice to the ring's own perspective. The ring will basically whisper in the ear of the character and the character will give voice to that. And, and in so doing, it would seem, try to persuade themselves. We will get that in the very next slide because Bilbo is immediately angry at the prospect of giving up the ring. If I am, it is your fault, said Bilbo. It is mine, I tell you, my own, my precious. Yes, my precious. The wizard's face remained grave and attentive, and only a flicker in his deep eyes showed that he was startled and indeed alarmed. It has been called that before, he said, but not by you. But I say it now, and why not? Even if Gollum said the same once, it's not his now, but mine, and I shall keep it, I say. Gandalf stood up. He spoke sternly. You will be a fool if you do, Bilbo, he said. You make that clearer with every word you say. It has got far too much hold on you. Let it go, and then you can go yourself and be free. I'll do as I choose and go as I please, said Bilbo obstinately. Now, now, my dear hobbit, said Gandalf. All your long life we have been friends, and you owe me something. Come, do as you promised. Give it up. If you want my ring yourself, say so, cried Bilbo. But you won't get it. I won't give my precious away, I tell you. His hand strayed to the hilt of his small sword. Gandalf's eyes flashed. It will be my turn to get angry soon, he said. If you say that again, I shall. Then you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. He took a step toward the hobbit, and he seemed to grow tall and menacing. His shadow filled the little room. So we see the same manipulation of Bilbo as the ring exerted over Gollum. It is precious. It is his. He should keep it. He should commit violence, even against those who are close to him, in order 
to keep it. This is going to be echoed, of course, in Golem's story, which we will get in the next chapter, the, the story of Smeagol and Deagol, who I'm just going to continually call Smeagol and Deagol because it is unpleasant to pronounce both of those vowels, even though I guess I'm supposed to. Smeagol and Deagol. These are not as 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 mellifluous, not as euphonious names to me as Smeagol and Deagol. So I'm going to probably just do a bad job pronouncing those. But this is the influence of the ring. This is the ring coercing Bilbo into keeping it, into not being given up and not being passed over. And a lot of time when scholars of Tolkien talk about this, we, we talk a lot about the ring and the effect of the ring and the, the influence of the ring. But I'm curious what the ring wants here. Why does the ring want to stay with Bilbo? Why does the ring want not to be given up? Is it that the ring can sense the future? Is it that the ring wants specifically Bilbo for some reason, for some dark purpose? Is it simply that the ring, having corrupted Bilbo this far, wants to corrupt him further? Well, possibly, but if we acknowledge the, the very likely truth that the ring left Gollum and came to Bilbo, we have to wonder what the ring had in mind, what it was that the ring wanted. Does the ring have a, a consciousness to that degree? Is it acting on instinct? Is it, is it simply acting against the desire to be given away, which would presumably, as, as Gandalf will tell us, do something to minimize and to mitigate the harm that it has already caused? Is its goal, to whatever degree it can be said to have a goal, simply the corruption of the bearer? Angela asks, this is a really interesting question, does it draw power from the corruption? You know, I hadn't thought of that. I don't think so. Capable of exerting an influence over those who have never held it, let alone those who have carried it for some time. And we do know that Bilbo is very resistant, as all hobbits are, it would seem, very resistant to the corruption of the ring. So if that were the case, if the ring even just wanted corruption, presumably it would want to be passed off into the hands of a man, a dwarf, an elf, someone super easily corrupted. But it doesn't. It seems to want to stay with Bilbo. And I find that very curious. Yeah. Dylan says, I've never read any kind of specific intent from the ring. The ring seems to be a chaotic force. It just wants people to want it at all costs. Diane says, the ring, um, the ring might have thought it needed to get out from under the mountain, unaware of the wider plan. That may be true, though Gollum has been under the mountain for untold ages. He's been down there a long, long time. Was this the first opportunity the ring had? to escape? May well be. That, that may well be the case. Though, isn't it also possible that if the ring wanted to escape from beneath the mountain, it could have whispered in Gollum's ear about, about you know, toothsome flesh, about, about plunder and, and, and treasure available on the surface? Possibly. It's, well, yeah, let's put a pin in this. In fact, I will encourage you all to think about the, the desire of the ring, the consciousness of the ring, the degree to which the ring has a real sense of agency and a real sense of its own self, a sense of, of broader awareness, and the degree to which it doesn't. It would be really interesting to, to try and track that, particularly when we get to the discussion next week. Yeah. Um, yes, good. 
Uh, Karen says, a possible relationship between Hobbit's constitutional resistance to the ring and a relatively unruled, unpower invested society. Absolutely, Karen. Yes, absolutely. Hobbits do not care about being great. They do not care about accumulating power. They do not care about accumulating wealth. Those are the primary vectors by which the ring will manipulate you. If you seek to be a hero, as, for example, Boromir does, if you want to be great, as Boromir does, then the ring can corrupt you in a heartbeat. The ring will be a constant temptation for you. If you have, if you possess great power and want to wield that great power, even in the pursuit of good ends, Gandalf, for example, Galadriel, for example, then the ring can corrupt you. But if you don't want anything beyond bacon and a whistling kettle, which seems to be true of most hobbits, if not all hobbits, then the ring can only do so much. And we're also reminded, of course, that... Um, we're also reminded, of course, that Bilbo used the ring, as we're told in the prefatory material that we discussed last week, Bilbo used the ring in the service of his friends. He didn't seek to acquire wealth, even when he was, he was playing the role of the burglar in, the Woodland, King, in, in the, the Woodland King's realm. It was in order to survive and in order to help his friends. It was a fairly selfless act. He wasn't trying to accumulate wealth. There's certainly no suggestion that Bilbo, as Smeagol did, went around Hobbiton, went around his, his home, stealing and causing mischief. Bilbo hasn't apparently been using the ring terribly often, if at all. Yeah. Good. Anthony says, I always thought it was awesome that as far as we know, Bilbo was the only person who has willingly given up the ring. We will talk about willingly giving up the ring because there are a few people who do it, but yes. And the degree to which he is willing, mm, he is willing, but it's not spontaneous. He is under some pressure. Gandalf is there kind of you know, applying some pressure to Bilbo to do the right thing. Now, he's not ever going to take the ring from Bilbo because that would be enormously destructive, of course, again, as we'll discover in the next chapter. But he is there reminding Bilbo of his promise. He's leveraging his personal relationship. As he says here, all your long life, we have been friends and you owe me something. Come, do as you promised. Give it up. And then he threatens him with anger and we get the, the swelling, the darkness, the shadow of Gandalf. We get this beat of, of real threat from Gandalf. So when Bilbo gives it up, it's, it is a testament to his strength, certainly to his purity, certainly, but it isn't completely unprompted. He doesn't just decide, eh, it's not for me. We'll talk about that later. Yes. Um, Boromir is awesome, but misguided, says Jenna. He's so much better than the movie made him seem. Yes, we'll, we'll definitely talk about Boromir. Uh, Boromir does not deserve the thin reading that um that he's often given he's boromir is not a bad guy he's just not a bad guy he's just a shade weaker than he ought to be and he does of course stand in the shadow of his brother faramir who as i've said before is maybe the best person who has ever lived i mean top five probably anyway yeah okay let's uh push on because I want to take a look at Bilbo's song, of course. Here we go. This is the song that Bilbo sings as he leaves. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow, if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say. 
This is the song that Bilbo sings. And if it should sound familiar, well, that's because it's based on the version that we get in The Hobbit. Roads go ever, ever on, over rock and under tree, by caves where never sun has shone, by streams that never find the sea, over snow by winter sown, and through the merry flowers of June, over grass and over stone, and under mountains in the moon. Roads go ever, ever on, under cloud and under star, yet feet that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar, eyes that fire and sword have seen, and horror in the halls of stone. Look at last on meadows green and trees and hills they long have known. Obviously, at the end of The Hobbit, Bilbo is fatigued. He is exhausted by his journey. He has seen fire and sword and horror, and he is ready to come home. Feet that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar. And trees and hills that long ha- they long have known, we see here in that last line. The version of this poem that we get in The Hobbit is about returning from the unknown to the known. The unknown here represented by caves where never sun has shone, by streams that never find the sea. This is, these are places which are themselves uncharted. But Bilbo has followed the road and it has led him back home. The version that we get in The Lord of the Rings, the first version that I just read there, the first version that we get in The Lord of the Rings, I should say, the road goes ever on and on down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet and whither then I cannot say. We're seeing here this idea of the tributary, that the stream has begun at Bilbo's front door and the road will flow forth and he will follow it with eager feet as far as he can. And that that little tributary will join into others, that they will flow together into a great river that he will be carried onward. And he doesn't know where it's going to lead. He's going to be led back into the unknown, just as he returned from the unknown at the end of The Hobbit. This is a beautiful piece of symmetry and we're not done with the road going ever, ever on. We'll uh, we'll take a look at that in, in a few weeks time, yes. Melissa says, the Lord of the Rings version reminds me of an Emily Dickinson poem. That's lovely. Oh, you're right. No, I, I can absolutely see that. There is, a, there is a familiar cadence there. Yes, good. Good. Yeah. Okay, um, let me see. All right, let's, uh, let's push on, actually, because I only have 10 more minutes and we have a couple more things to discuss. Move on to our next slide here. Now Frodo talks with Gandalf, and Gandalf, while leaving the Shire, carries with him some some ominous foreboding here. Um, I don't understand, said Frodo. Neither do I, answered the wizard. I have merely begun to wonder about the ring, especially since last night. No need to worry, but if you take my advice, you will use it very seldom or not at all. At least, I beg you not to use it in any way that will cause talk or rouse suspicion. I say again, keep it safe and keep it secret. You're very mysterious. What are you afraid of? I'm not certain, so I will say no more. I may be able to tell you something when I come back. I'm going off at once, so this is goodbye for the present. He got up. At once, cried Frodo. Why, I thought you were staying on for at least a week. I was looking forward to your help. I did mean to, but I've had to change my mind. I may be away for a good while, but I'll come and visit you again as soon as I can. Expect me when you see me. I shall slip in quietly. I shan't often be visiting the Shire openly again. I find that I have become rather unpopular. They say I am a nuisance and a disturber of the peace. Some people are actually accusing me of spiriting Bilbo away, or worse. If you want to know, there is supposed to be a plot between you and me to get hold of his wealth. The 
tension here between Gandalf and Frodo. The tension between what Gandalf is saying and what Gandalf actually means is fascinating. I have merely begun to wonder about the ring, especially since last night. Gandalf has seen now for the first time the influence of the ring over Bilbo, what the ring is capable of driving Bilbo to do. And that has disquieted him. He is now ready to go and investigate, and we'll pick up on those investigations in chapter two. But he is already concerned. He tells Frodo two things. Use it seldom or not at all. The ring itself inherently is dangerous to use, so don't use it. And if you're going to use it, make absolutely sure that you don't do it in a way that will cause talk or rouse suspicion. Keep it safe and keep it secret. Now, those two impulses are very different impulses. This is a dangerous thing, but if you're going to use it, don't use it in public. Gandalf is saying two things about the ring here. He is afraid for Frodo because of the influence of the ring. That seems clear. But he's also afraid of talk and suspicion and gossip and rumor. And it must not be the case that Frodo's magic ring become common knowledge. Indeed, as we see here at the end, Gandalf, who has been visiting the Shire frequently enough that Hobbit children know him by sight, is now not going to visit publicly again. Why is that? Because, as he says here, of gossip, of talk, of rumor. He doesn't want the Hobbits of Hobbiton to have any cause to talk about him, or talk about Bilbo going away, or talk about Frodo, or speculate about Bilbo's disappearance at the party. He doesn't want this to be common knowledge. He doesn't want this to be public. Jackie says, Gandalf isn't being very honest, but he's, and he's also putting Frodo in an incredible amount of danger by leaving the ring in his keeping. And, and Diane says, I think you begin to see the personality difference between, uh, between Bilbo and Frodo here. Karen says, I always wonder the limits of Gandalf's knowledge. Narrative-wise, it's essential, but in the context of the whole mythos, it seems a little contrived. Still, I wouldn't do it another way. I think... I think that there is a reading here where Gandalf's apparent lack of knowledge about the ring is surprising. His lack of interest in the ring may seem surprising, particularly because of the reframing that was done surrounding the ring between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. In the Hobbit, of course, as I've said before, the ring was just supposed to be a magic ring. There were supposed to be, I don't know, hundreds of the things all over the world, and some would cause invisibility and some would do other things. It was just a magic ring. It was just a fairy tale ring. In the reframing between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, of course, it becomes so much more than that. It becomes the one ring. It becomes the most important magical artifact. Nope. Okay. I'll exempt the Silmarils. It becomes the most important magical artifact apart from the Silmarils in the history of Middle-earth. It is incredibly important, and it does seem surprising that Gandalf doesn't recognize it or acknowledge it or know about it. We'll talk a little about the history of the ring, the in-universe history of the ring at the beginning of next week's session, and then Gandalf will actually give his account to Frodo. So we'll be able to look at what Gandalf himself says about his knowledge of the ring. Yeah, yeah, good. But certainly at this point, it is clear that already he doesn't want to draw attention to Frodo. Yes, to Hobbiton, seems very likely. To the Shire, possibly, possibly. He doesn't want... Hobbit's talking about this and presumably also doesn't want strangers passing through the Shire learning this story and then repeating it in Bree or further afield. He wants to keep it secret, keep it safe. Okay. Uh, Fina says, I was at a huge book event on the anniversary of the, the, of the ring and I read my favorite part of the third volume to a group of people. I simply loved the atmosphere. 
Uh, Gene says, to swing back to the casting of Frodo as younger than in the book, in the films, I would say that when my dad read the book to me as a child, I connected with Frodo so much. Well, this is part of it. It's, it's not that Frodo is still youthful. I mean, he's an adult, but he's still fairly young. He's, he's 50-something by the, by the time that we actually pick up the thread of the narrative, um, which would be the Hobbit equivalent of maybe mid-20s, maybe late-20s. You know, he's, he's still youthful. What was lost in the book, uh, what was lost in the movie adaptation of the book for me was not Frodo's age, Frodo's relative maturity. It was the discrepancy between Frodo and the other hobbits. The other hobbits are all so much younger than he is. Yeah. Good. Yeah, as Shane says, a thousand years have passed since the One Ring was even thought about. Yes. Uh, Gene picks up that thought. So casting Frodo as younger isn't untrue to the text, I think. No, I can completely, I, I understand the impulse. Um, and it would, of course, have been impossible to cast Elijah Wood as Frodo and then to cast, what, 15-year-olds as Mary and Pippin and Sam? That probably wouldn't have worked out so well. Um, it, it is different and it's not, it's not worse. Um, it's simply, it, it's a function of the adaptational choice. Um, Peter Jackson made a number of adaptive choices that had consequences. And, and while we can understand the choice and even approve of the choice, we can still discuss the, the consequence that it had. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Let's, uh, let's actually wrap this up then with our final slide, which is a very short slide because this is the very end of the chapter. I just love the way that this draws everything together into, into twilight here. Frodo saw him to the door. He gave a final wave of his hand and walked off at a surprising pace. But Frodo thought the old wizard looked unusually bent, almost as though as if he was carrying a great weight. Almost as if he was carrying a great weight, I should say. The evening was closing in, and his cloaked figure quickly vanished into the twilight. Frodo did not see him again for a long time. And that is the end of the, of the long-expected party, excuse me. Um, we do a great job here, I think, of framing... Our, our core conflict. We have put the focus on the ring. We have taken Bilbo out of the narrative already and introduced Frodo as our, our primary protagonist. We are now ready to start. It is a very dense chapter. There is a lot to say. I could have spent, honestly, twice as much time discussing this chapter as I have, but it's... Uh, it's important, I think, that we get we get the social hierarchy down, we get the influence of the ring down, we get Gandalf's knowledge or, or not knowledge about the ring, and we get Bilbo's relationship with the ring down. Those are the key elements here in the first chapter, because a lot of the Hobbit stuff, a lot of the Shire stuff, while fascinating, while it absolutely adds to our understanding of these characters and their world, isn't really going to be relevant again until the very, very end of the novel. You know, we're going to, as I say, circle back around to the Shire right at the end. So, yes. Um, uh, Narnia says, although Elijah Wood still has the same baby face, so he still looks the same age, has quite the baby face, so he still looks the same age now. Yes, yes. Great last line, says Heroes and Bards. Frodo did not see him again for a long time. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. And so much world building throughout this chapter. Yeah, yeah. He knows, guys. He knows something. something's up here, says Jackie. He clearly knows. Yes, he's clearly familiar, but uh, he's not jumping to conclusions. And I will say that um, we will talk about this next week. If Gandalf is aware that this ring is the one ring, if he is aware that it is one of the great rings, um, if he even suspects that this ring is one of the great rings, then actually there is almost no better choice than leaving it with Frodo because he, he must know if, if he has traveled that far down the road to suspect that this may be the case and is, of course, aware of the corruptive influence of the rings. He has seen Bilbo over the last 50 years 
really not be corrupted. Bilbo hasn't turned evil. Bilbo hasn't accumulated a, a, a great hoard of treasure beneath Bag End, even though that's the rumor. He hasn't raised an army and gone to conquer Bree. He hasn't done these things. He hasn't, hasn't waged war on Mickledelving. He hasn't uh, really changed at all which would presumably lead Gandalf to believe that hobbits are somewhat resistant to, the, resistant to the foul influence of the ring. Therefore, leaving the ring with Frodo, given that the Shire is basically unknown, given that Frodo is basically anonymous, given that no one knows about the ring anyway, and given that hobbits themselves are resistant, where would be better? Where else should he put the ring? Because he can't carry it himself, because that would make him a ring bearer, and that would be really bad, you guys. That would be really, really bad. Yeah. Right, that's the fundamental conceit of the whole book, right? Says Karen Ruff, that a hobbit is a safe repository. Yes, exactly that, yes. Jackie says, right, it's the best choice, but he told Frodo not to worry, and then when he comes back, is like, worry, worry very much. Jackie, that is magnificent. Yes, he, he is and should be. I mean, again, we'll talk about all of that next week. In fact, let me show the slide here just so we can, uh, you know, do the formal thing that we do at the end of these sessions. Next week's session, The Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 2, The Shadow of the Past, many people's favorite chapter in the entire first volume of The Lord of the Rings, I dare say, 10 a.m. Eastern, next Thursday, May the 11th, 2017. That is, as I said, going to be an unusually early session. Um, it may run the full two hours instead of just the 90 minutes because I'll have a little bit more flexibility that day. We'll see how it pans out. And at least until we get to the Council of Elrond, uh, the Shadow of the Past is going to be the most complicated chapter that we're going to talk about. So we can spend a little bit of extra time breaking that chapter down and, and really seeing Gandalf's motivation, really seeing the history of the ring. I do want to give a brief kind of extra textual history of the ring, just for, for those of you who haven't, you know, delved into the appendices and into all the additional material, just kind of frame exactly what the ring is. And then we can... Uh, then we can talk about Gandalf and Frodo and the plan that springs forth from them and their discussion. That will do it then for today, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your support every week here on there and back again. As I said, probably two sessions within the next week, uh, the next live discussion and probably a little pre-recorded uh, letter, uh, listener letter Q&A kind of thing. I want to talk about your fantastic ideas is the whole thing. If you like what I do here at Point North Media, if you would like me to do more, if you would like to make sure that this thing can continue and we can cover all the rest of the Lord of the Rings and all the Silmarillion and everything that flows forth from it, then please, please head over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia and pledge your support. You can pledge a dollar a month there and that will make this entire endeavor sustainable. I'm really grateful for your support. That is literally the only thing that keeps Point North Media afloat and a little more buoyancy in that regard would be very appreciated at this time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. I will see you all next week. Until then, take care. Bye.